IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums and we hash out trends. In this episode we celebrate our one year anniversary by inducting some of our favorite underappreciated indie classics into the IndieCast Hall of Fame. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? Uh, I, I'm just beyond excited to welcome the IndieCast listener into the darker, more introspective sophomore year true. of uh, IndieCast. Like, what, 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 other, what other music critic cliches should we throw at this? Are we leveling up? Are we... Are we taking things in a darker direction? Is this that like- remains to be seen? We either level up or we <laughs> fail to live up to the expectations of our promising debut. Um, it could go either way, it, or it could be a situation where uh, this, our sophomore effort uh, is underappreciated in its time, and then future generations will return to it and actually say that it's better than our than our first season. So. Anything could happen. <laughs> Most likely, it's going to be like this, the the uh, room on fire antics thing, where it's like pretty uh, much the same. That's true. That's true. <laughs> and um, you know, I like room on fire more. Well, I don't know if I like it more, oh. but I like it as much as is this it. So hopefully, that portends well for us as we move into our room on fire slash antics era on this show. But before we get to the looking ahead, I think we should just take a moment to recognize that we. Are one year in to the IndieCast era. I think it's I think it's safe to say that we are the dominant brand in indie rock at this point. Uh, no <laughs> one else is doing indie rock podcasts. There are no indie rock websites anymore. We are the only people out there <laughs> waving the flag. Uh, we, we, we killed all of our competitors. We're the so I, I I think we should recognize the achievement of that. Yeah, I I think we should just like actually like. If you're if you're listening like and you're in it for the long haul like get prepared because this and this episode is just us listing off enemies that we have smited <laughs> over the past year trends that we have set yep. like ways in which Steve and I have just permanently altered the trajectory of indie rock for years to come but I think even before we get to the highs and lows like you know like as part of like the reissue anniversary cottage industry like is there a way. Is there a way like we could repackage our first year, you know, like for the for the reissue, the deluxe package or something like that? We got all this material on the shelf and, you know, we should, I don't know, maybe get stereo and mono mixes oh, for yeah. the real heads. I like that. I, you know, I like to think <laughs> that when people write think pieces about our first season, that they'll look at it as a document of what it was like to do an indie rock podcast during uh, the pandemic, uh, which I, I feel like is sort of like doing a... Uh, podcast about the titanic like right as it hits the iceberg you know like and that's the part you're going to be covering i mean it was a weird time to be doing a music (laughs) podcast because i mean there were there were stretches where there was not much going on i mean there's no touring obviously bands were holding records back because they were trying to wait out uh you know this slowdown in the industry this shutdown and now we're seeing it pick back up although who knows what's going to happen i mean I, I tend to think, I mean, we're not going to get shut down again, I don't think, with this Delta variant. Are we? Or, I mean, have I just jinxed us by saying that? I, we, we, tend, we tend to manifest things in the real world just by mentioning it on this podcast. So, like, be very careful 
of what kind of juju you're putting into the All right, air. well, I'm saying it's not going to shut down. So I'm, I'm trying to actualize that. And I'm, and I'm actualizing people getting vaccinated, wearing masks, keeping this, mm. you know, variant at bay. And we can continue to move forward. That That's my hope. Uh, Cole, Be- Cole Beasley, Carson Wentz, if you're listening to IndyCast, like, please get vaccinated. Are they not vaccinated? Uh, there's a lot of guys in the NFL. Like this is really bringing out. Oh, the, yeah, that's uh, right. Some specious stuff. Cole Beasley. Wait, did, like, did you say uh, what? You probably thought that was the guy from Dive or well, something no, like, like did that. Did you say? Did, <laughs> I, I, did you say Pete Wentz or Carson Wentz? I thought you said Carson Wentz. Okay, you I said Pete I, Wentz. I random. Didn't you? I did not. I said Carson Wentz, dude. This is like I'm a Philadelphia sports fan more so than a Fallout Boy fan, okay. despite. What you know, despite what people might think, but in my uh, brain, I yeah, heard Pete I, Wentz, so that's what threw me off a little bit. I thought, like, oh, yeah, is, is, is like Pete Wentz doing like a Fallout Boy like concept album about how getting a vaccination is a uh, you know a conspiracy <laughs> nah, by aliens to control our minds? Nah, they're they're on the they're on the Hella Mega tour right now with uh, Weezer and Green Day, so they, they their ass needs to be out there. Oh man, how haven't we talked about that tour yet? I, I'm surprised that that it, hasn't we, come up until now. <laughs> Because it's been delayed. It was supposed to happen last right. year. And, you know, much like uh, Weezer's out. Like, at this point, I think we're just, like, kind of immune. Like, I hate using that pun, but, like, kind of immune to any kind of Weezer news. Like, nothing at all was going to move the needle. I suppose. <laughs> just like a Weezer Green Day Fallout Boy stadium tour, I think. There's something yeah. about that. that uh, which, by the way, if I if, if I were to go to that, I'm sure I'd, Probably rules. Yeah, I'm sure I'd have a good time. But in the abstract, it, it just seems hilarious to me there's something very funny about that tour and i don't i can't really put my finger on it i think because all three of those bands have had such you know bizarre, bizarre careers great careers wondrous careers but yeah. also at times hilarious careers uh i love yeah. thinking about all three of those bands um i did see i i, I did one of my great nature's healing moments is that i saw a commercial for that tour like at eight in the morning at the gym <laughs> and it's like wow oh right they used to advertise like big shows like that on television yeah wow look at that 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 that's gonna get you up at the gym seeing uh, yeah well, you know 50 year old pop <laughs> punk guys with like pyrotechnics behind them and all that jazz it sounds it sounds sick yeah actually. exactly look <laughs> We we kid because we love. I mean, this is totally in our wheelhouse, yeah. that sort of thing. Uh, but back to our anniversary for a minute. I mean, I think I think that we can both agree that like if it was a low that we were doing the show during the pandemic and it was often depressing to contemplate the music industry during that time, <laughs> that a high for both of us is the IndieCast community, the people who write into our show and um, you know they they respond with you know they interact with us on Twitter. Um, it's just been great to see those people, you know, the people out there who, uh, they want to talk to their friends about deer hunter, emo and jam bands and their friends mm-hmm. don't care. So then they listen to our show and it's, they can get a little bit of, uh, interaction in their mind, you know, for an hour a week. Uh, that's been really gratifying. Would you say? Yeah. I mean, it, it like, it, it's never at all lost on me how amazing it is to wake up like on Friday morning and like see people are like already talking about like stuff they heard on IndieCast or writing in. It's like, wait, y'all listen. Like you guys are really listening to us and you have us like bookmarked and what have you. It's, I don't know. It's, it's, it's just really wild to think about. And also the fact that like 
our that like we have in jokes now and that like people are following and making callbacks like it i mean there's like always a part of me that thinks you know what this is this isn't gonna like like most podcasts or like anything music related it's like this is gonna flame out after like a month no one's gonna care and you know it would be fun but you know there's no staying power to it but i mean it's really the people who like you know right into the mailbag and reference previous episodes that like keep this going Oh, absolutely and it, and again it feels really nice to hear from people who like the show and and to know that it means something to them so honestly this is this is sincere i think on both of our parts thank you for listening thank you for writing in. it it, it, mm. it it makes it so much fun and and hopefully we can continue to do a fun show for you all yeah. uh in our troubled sophomore season um <laughs> or not maybe this is the one where we, we just like turn on our fans we make the anti-fame album this is like our congratulations record yeah. like, like we're, we're not playing the hits anymore guys no more emo no more jam bands we're talking about straight up 70s prog yep we're just gonna just we're just gonna drop acid before every episode and uh, <laughs> dribble you know dribble i hope mouth. you guys like king crimson oh man that actually sounds pretty awesome i i would be into yeah, that i'd be into that pivot <laughs> um i think we should mention quick that um a huge album is coming out today the latest billy eilish record yeah and we didn't get an advanced stream, so we, we're not going to talk about it in this episode. Yeah. I think we're going to talk about it next <laughs> week. Um, and I'm curious to dig into this record because I hope this mm. is not impolite to say, but I feel like the singles have been pretty bad from this album. <laughs> like, am I, am I being too harsh? With that. Yeah, speaking of like speaking of like fraught sophomore albums that are a reaction to fame, we, we consider ourselves to be, you know, one and the same with Billie Eilish, but I don't know if bad is the right term. Like I think they're fine. I just think that what's fascinating to me about this album rollout is it, it kind of seems like we have like a kind of a potential flop on our hands, like that I would never had expected because it's not like this. She's been like wildly overexposed and releasing new stuff every like year. It's not like she's gone out of stock. I mean, when I see like teenagers and young adults, she's still very much a fashion icon, like in a style icon. That has not changed. But I just like how like how is this not like dominating, especially in this like leveled playing this like leveled landscape where like nothing like there aren't any like big new pop stars like. I I just can't figure this one out. Like as a as a, less as someone who's like, um, like more as just like someone who like is a forensic music person, you know, who likes to dissect narratives and see trends and so forth. I mean, I think the sol- I think the answer to your question is that the singles have just not been that great. I mean, you, yeah. you look at her first record, a song like "Bad Guy." You can't really deny that song. It's like a earworm. Yeah. It. You hear it, it's stuck in your head, you're hearing it come out of car stereos and, you know, at the gas station, and it's just an undeniable song. And I don't think that the songs she's putting out so far for this record are approaching that. And they're also, like, not only are they not as earwormy, you know, they seem like they're trying to be earworms and they're just not hitting it. It's not like she's made the difficult second record that's more experimental and that's why it's not hitting. Yeah. But you're also like, oh, this is interesting, though. In a way, like the Claro record that came out recently. Like, that's not as yeah. immediate. But in a lot of ways, it's it's like an interesting second record. You can tell that she's going for something a little more introspective. Uh, and maybe not as mass appeal as her earlier work. 
Um, I don't know. I mean, we're judging this on the singles. I, I'm curious to hear the record. Hopefully the record um, is much better than what we've heard so far. But I don't know. I, I, I have a bad feeling about this album. Mm. So I guess we'll, we'll find out when we get into we'll it. We'll find out, yeah. Yeah, we don't get the advances. That's why we're indie cast and not pop. Yeah, that's so. true. I I, I, <laughs> I wonder... Uh, I mean, I haven't seen any reviews yet. We're recording this on Thursday. I no. assume that there's... If there was streams for, you know, the the people higher up the food chain than us, um, that, you know, there must be some sort of embargo maybe for Friday. Um, yeah. But I don't know. We'll see what happens. Also, you know... In this quasi self congratulatory tone so far, I'd be remiss to not mention that the 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 surreal experience of watching the Woodstock '99 documentary and seeing Stephen Hyden like right there on the screen, and um, you know that that was an interesting experience because first and foremost, you know, my fiance like every like the first time Moby gets on the screen, she points like, "Hey, it's you." That's not really her voice. I but I was um, gonna say it was like a so, reunion, really, for us. Yeah, in that I movie. Know. <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought. It's like, hey, wait a minute. On like the next IndieCast visualizer, can we just like superimpose like <laughs> Moby's face at, on mine and see if anyone notices like tattoos and all? But um, you know, the one the one thing that uh, she had brought up after the episode was over because, of course, you know, I'm gonna ask like you. So, do you think Steve did a good mm-hmm. job? And uh, she appreciated the fact that uh, you were the one person who uh, initially and then repeatedly pointed out that like the first Woodstock was like also kind of a shit show. Right. Yeah, and I mean, and yeah. that was a big thesis of my my podcast that came exactly, out a couple yeah. years ago, which is Break Stuff, and you can go check it out if you want to hear that. Um, I don't think I was the only one. I think Maureen Callahan says something before me about how there were mm-hmm. riots and people died, and and then I kind of go into my little spiel. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it's been uh, really great seeing the response. It seemed like a lot of people watched it, and uh, yeah, um, and I think. The reaction has been largely positive. I mean, I've definitely seen criticism in my timeline from people, uh, which I told myself I'm not going to respond to uh, because, I, you know, <laughs> I'm not the director of the film. It's not my place really to be a spokesperson for the movie. Uh, Garrett Price is the director. And just for the record, I think he did a great job. But uh, he did an interview in Slate this week where uh, he talked about the movie and he responded to some of the things that people have called out in the movie, things that people don't like. And I thought he did a really good job of responding to that. So I'll let him speak for that. But uh, yeah, I'm just glad people checked it out. And uh, if you haven't yet, it's still on HBO Max to stream. Mm -hmm. So give it a look and uh, uh, don't let me know what you think. I I don't want to hear what you... Unless it's giving me lots and lots of compliments, then I want to hear that. But other than that... Uh, yeah, thanks for watching it. And thank you to your fiance. Um, yes. And you're getting married this year, aren't you? Yeah, October. Oh, my God. Are we going to have like a special <laughs> wedding edition of, of IndieCast? <laughs> yeah, right now we're, right now we're uh, putting together like, you know, playlists and whatnot. But I got, I got to mention that like we, we might be really inspired by the wedding we went to a few weeks ago where the bridal and groom party uh, walked out the house of jealous lovers. So like this is... This is a big time for us to like really embrace like what we want to put on our wedding, um, <laughs> on our wedding playlist. And like, gosh, I, I can only, 
I can only imagine like what people would recommend. Like, oh, it's it's trust me, it's not going to be what you think. I do realize I have to, you know, there there are people who aren't like emo fans <laughs> who will be in attendance. As a matter of fact, I'm pretty much the only one. So. Uh, yeah, I'm, this I, I can imagine this is going to be a, a mailbag thing. Well, I imagine like the way I envision your playlist is that you'll start off with like some tried and true, like you'll have like Cool in the Gang Celebration, which is like maybe the quintessential wedding song, and then like by like eleven yes. thirty, when most people have left and everyone has had you know a couple two three drinks, then you'll be playing like you know the entirety of Mirror <laughs> My God. You know, you just put Mirror <laughs> My God on in its entirety, and uh, you know that'll be like the end, like the sloppy end of the reception. That's my prediction. <laughs> God, I, I, I it, we can only hope. <laughs> well, uh, let's let's get to our mailbag segment, yes. and um, this week it, it's sort of like a meta question, and uh, that it, it, it's it's commenting on our show uh, while also asking a direct question. Um, and it comes from a friend of the show, Miranda, who is one of the hosts of another indie rock podcast. Although I, I don't think they would call themselves an indie rock podcast. They're probably more of like a punk emo indie uh, like podcast. But they're called Endless Scroll. And I was joking earlier that there are no other indie <laughs> rock podcasts. There are other shows. They're the only other one. Endless Scroll. We, yeah, we recognize for now. Yeah, we recognize Endless Scroll. Um, and uh, that's a show. It's hosted by four people in their 20s. And we're a show hosted by two people in their 40s. So if you add <laughs> up the ages of each show's hosts, it's about the same amount. But we get there more efficiently uh, mm. on our show. Uh, but this is the question from Miranda. Hey, Stephen Ian, why do you think indie rock dudes all seem to think their favorite Pitchfork 8.1 artists from 2011 <laughs> should be sailing out arenas now? Big fan of the show, Miranda from Philadelphia. Good question, Miranda. Miranda is referencing something that I think we often hear in our mailbag. People write in about a favorite of theirs from many years ago, and it's often asking, like, is this person underrated? Why are they underrated? And they want to know, like, it, we've we've had lots of discussions about bands like this uh, on our show. And she's poking fun at that a little bit. But there's also, I think, a deeper question here. Um, but I'm wondering what you have to say about this, about this question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think this one kind of hits quite directly at uh, one of the things I consider pretty much every single episode. But yeah, ambitious crossover event. Um I look in terms that perhaps they can understand uh, for her and Gabe. Um, you know, it's like this. Why do people call into Philadelphia sports radio saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ben Simmons, uh, he's garbage. And we also need to trade to Portland for Dame Lillard and CJ McCollum. I think they make that trade. You know, it's like you want to, that, this is the second I'm bringing back the Philadelphia sports fan voice. This is one of my favorite, you know, one of the, I love one of the most beloved bits we have, but, um, it, I love it, it. It's it's you know like if you're a fan of the sport and the sport being indie rock narrative, uh, you do a little armchair quarterbacking and um yeah so I think it's more of a semantic question which is to say like uh you know should they be playing these arenas or not I think it's more that uh it, it's a it's a sign of like empathy for people in the indie rock struggle um because. If, if you if you love these bands and like you want to see them 
succeed. Like, I think what they'd be more than happy to see is these bands playing like the 500 to 1,000 capacity arena in any given city or like still be playing the festival circuit. Um, uh, it's it's when, it, when people of that age bring it up, it's more that they just want to see Elena's sustainability for these bands, which really doesn't seem to exist because, I mean, have you ever tried to write a song like, or make an, like, that's really hard. Um, and, you know, for most bands in your local scene, like being, you know, the third opener for a 6.3 band at like the local 200 cap venue is like the peak of their career. If like you get written about on like one of the bigger like publications, you're like king shit in the town. Like I've seen that many a time. And if you make like an 8.1, you know, whatever you want to call it type album, it's like, man, this album, this, like, how is this band not famous? How are they not like successful? It's not, I think with music more so than like any other thing, it's, I, I think people just don't see the connection between remuneration and, uh, and effort. And so if, especially if you like indie rock, it's like, people are going to stop doing it if there isn't like a lane of sustainability. So I think in yeah. a way it just speaks to the main uh, topic of IndieCast, which is the inexorable march of time and people struggling with coming to grips with uh, their mortality. Yeah, I mean, I think the issue that's lurking in the background of, of Miranda's question, which I mean, she was being she was kidding when she tweeted that at us, but I think there's a there's a serious underlying point, which is about I think the generational divide that exists between people like us who grew up at a time where it was possible to be an indie band or an underground band and actually sell millions of records or have a major place in the culture. And if you were born at the turn of the century, you know, born in the late nineties or like right after the year 2000, like you haven't really come up in an era like where that was at all realistic. So mm -hmm. to even complain about like your favorite band not being more popular than they are, you know, it, I think to, people of a certain age, it just seems like a ridiculous thing to even care about. Um, there's, I think, an acceptance now more among probably younger listeners that, like, my favorite band is probably only going to play clubs, and that's perfectly okay with me because I like to see them in clubs, and it makes them more approachable, and it's it's a better fan experience. Um, I will say, too, like, on this show that we talk a lot of a lot about new music, but we also talk about records like we're going to do in this episode that we really love from the past that uh, have been forgotten in some way. And it really is kind of amazing. Like the older you get and the more bands that you see that were really great and actually did have an audience for a certain period of time that just totally get pushed to the wayside. Like yeah. there's so few people that actually go the distance in terms of becoming a legacy act. And, it has so little to do, I think, a lot of times, like with the quality of the bands. I mean, obviously, it helps to be a great band, but there's also just the the vagaries of fate. You know, yeah. there's so many things that can happen that just uh, prevent you from being known uh, outside of your moment. Um, although I will say that even having a moment is a great achievement. Like if you had a really great record in 2003. Like, that should be recognized. I mean, most bands don't even get to that point. Um, so, again, as much as we like to talk about new music on this show, I think there is something valuable 
to recognizing those uh, diamonds in the rough from the past that you can excavate and expose to a new audience and they can hear this record that uh, no one talks about it anymore, but we're going to talk about it and hopefully they'll hear it and they'll enjoy it. Above all else, like our tendency to remember some guys is a public service. Like we, <laughs> we're giving back to the community. And like, I mean that with all sincerity, because if, if not us, who will remember some guys, you know? Well, and you brought up this point when we were, uh, you know, just, uh, DMing this week about yeah. there's this uh, like Pitchfork right now they're doing a survey of listeners about the top 25 albums of the last 25 years and I don't know if Pitchfork's going to do their own list to accompany that I'm not sure what the plan is there but you brought up a good point about how a lot of times with those lists they tend to default to the canonized albums that yeah. we all know and love and and with good reason. Like, if someone were to ask me, like, what's the best album of the last 25 years, you know, off the top of my head, I'd probably say something like, okay, computer. Yeah. Or, you know, which is super canonized as an album, but I think it's a great record. Uh, it should be on that list. But sometimes it's more interesting to, like, actually not talk about the best albums, but, like, really great albums that are just unsung. Yeah. One thing, like, if anyone remembers Stylist Magazine, like, this is, like, hardcore remembers some guys. A lot of people who I write with my peers uh, started out there, but they, we did a list like that where we did a vote uh, for, you know, top 50, hundred albums of all time or whatever. And they just published one Oh one to one Oh to 200. <laughs> they published the second half, which was so fascinating. Oh, but, that's clever. That's a clever yeah, idea. I like that. Yeah. That's like, yeah, that's the thing for me. It's like, I always say it's like the thirties and forties of any year end list that really tell you the story of that particular year. But you know, with this, with this one, yeah, it's probably going to be like OK Computer, then Frank Ocean, then another Frank Ocean, then Kendra. And, you know, which is great. Like that's it's a people's list. But, um, yeah, I think like I find myself just completely paralyzed by putting together my own list because it's like how how can I like like it just seems like time travel. Like how can I compare, let's say, like turn on the bright lights, you know, and now my listen to when I was like 22 and like taking New Jersey transit up to New York to like party with my friends who are just out of college and investment bankers and like the first glass beach album, which I listen to way more often, but because it's more recent. So yeah, I, I, and it just cuts like I, do I think about this strategically and just put on a bunch of emo albums that no one's going to vote for it's like it, my brain ties in knots trying to reckon with this task. Yes. Which would otherwise be so easy in the past. <laughs> it's always a battle for me between picking what I think are the best records and what I think would be a more interesting list. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's really hard to reconcile that. Because, yeah, it, it, on some level, yeah, you should just put the records on that you think are the best. And I think, oh, yeah, OK, Computer to me is this impactful, influential, great record. But also, it's kind of boring to talk about at this yeah. point. And I say that as someone who wrote a book about Radiohead. <laughs> yeah, you know, and I like talking about Radiohead. Yeah. Um, but uh, in a list situation, um, where you're just writing a blurb, what are you going to say in a blurb about OK Computer that hasn't already been, been said? Whereas some of the records we're going to talk about today, yes. um, I think you know, it feels a little fresh. It's like not as traversed territory uh to talk about uh so maybe we should just get into it 
here. Uh, and if you listen to our show, you know that we've done the IndieCast Hall of Fame before. And at some point, I think we need to erect a physical building for the <laughs> IndieCast Hall of Fame so people can visit it, take their children, yeah. and learn about <laughs> the albums that you and I like that we feel don't get enough attention. Yeah. Um, have the plaques on the wall like not platinum or gold but like the one with like the used 699 sticker on it or something <laughs> like that like where you find it at disco round or whatever you, your local ucd store happened to be and i don't know if we would build this place in minneapolis or in san diego um or maybe some other place in between yeah maybe maybe san diego because like as i always say it's like san diego is like a city that kind of lives in the past. It's like always LA from eight to 10 years ago. So maybe this, maybe that fits within the indie cast ethos of, uh, you know, remembering some guys. That's true. In San Diego, they need more tourist attractions. So <laughs> yeah, put the, indie yeah, cast no, no one there. ever wants to come here to enjoy the perfect weather and like location by the ocean. You well, know? that's why maybe we should put it in Minneapolis because we, you know, we have the winter yeah. and people are coming here to see, uh, Paisley Park, but yeah. they can also swing by the IndyCast Hall of Fame. Maybe we'll build that across the street. Yeah, it's, and... it's like when you put Burger King and McDonald's next to each other. Like, you know, that <laughs> that's the strategy. You want to ha- you want to consolidate. So you and I, we both picked our, uh, two records to talk about yes. today. So four records total. Uh, why don't you go first? What's your first uh, inductee? All right. So with this 25-year cutoff, like I wanted to make sure I had something from the past 25 years. And this one's just on the borderline. This is, I want to first talk about a Screaming Trees album called Dust. Now, ah. this, this is, I, I fear that this is where I'm going to lose like people who kind of know me as someone who talks mostly about like, you know, modern emo. This one came out in 1996. I bought it because of like a really glowing four-star review. And let me just tell you, Screaming Trees, like just a brief introduction. They are a band who um, quintessential kind of B-team grunge band, which is obviously like a very reductive way to think of them. But they had a hit song, Nearly Lost You, on the single soundtrack. And it came out, which came out like a couple of months after Sweet Oblivion, the album from which it came. And this is kind of proto-indie cast, not just because they're a band that you know, teases out the extremely uh, strong Doors and Led Zeppelin influence in the Seattle scene. Like, the way Seattle was framed was, like, just kind of a complete renunciation of classic rock. Not at all the case. Um, But I think what makes them, like, an IndieCast favorite is that they just had some really shitty luck. Um, This record came out four years after their one and only hit, really. Uh, and you know, they, they had been through a lot of like industry rigmarole, like we should say that their hit is nearly lost you, which which was on the single soundtrack and also on their record, sweet oblivion. Yeah. And so, you know, Mark Lanigan, he was the lead singer guy who's been a great character actor in the darker rock world in the time since, uh, if you see the videos, like one of the story, the story that they always tell is that like labels didn't know what to do with them. They have like two really hulking brothers in there in the band and like you would read stories mark was like labels would tell me yeah man get rid of one of the fat dudes and then we can talk and uh yeah it's like yeah it yeah because a lot of people like grunge you know they might be anti-rock stars but they were constantly shirtless um but yeah dust is an album that you know contrary to the one it's kind of part of this 1995 96 uh 
what happened with alt rock you got black love another indie cast hall of fame like this urge overkills exit the dragon these like pinkerton even these like darker follow-up albums that took things in a more muted and mystical direction and uh, this album you know takes away some of the more noisy grungy parts and just leaves like in the mid 90s like a very unfashionable album that is based in like real like real deal classic rock they have a song called dying days on there um you know which it sounds like uh like led zeppelin um and also i have to give a shout out to this album because the final song in this record is called gospel plow it's a take on i guess like an old like spiritual or whatever and you know this being 1996 uh, and I love this record. Uh, I made Gospel Plow like my AOL screen name. And wow, uh, yeah, in, yeah. In the early days, I got like a lot of weird uh, communications from like uh, religious based people because they assumed I was like you know evangelical Christian. It's like no, I like this obscure Screaming Trees song. Um, but yeah, this is a record that I can't imagine coming out now, or it could come out now and just sound like super duper fresh, you know. It's like the best Kings of Leon album that you with like the vocal screwed in shop that you could possibly imagine. Yeah, that's a great analogy there. Yeah, I I, I second this recommendation. I, I also want to do a quick shout out to the first Man- Mark Lanigan solo record, which came out mm. in 1990, called The Winding Sheet. And uh, I think it's my favorite thing that he's ever done. It uh. sounds a lot like the unplugged record that Nirvana made three years later. There's actually a cover of Where Did You Sleep Last Night on that record that Kurt Cobain sings on. Mm. So uh, if you're looking for the roots of Nirvana Unplugged, check out The Winding Sheet by Mark Lanigan. Like really good, just gloomy, grunge folk record. Um, But yeah, I also love Screaming Trees and I love Dust. That's a great recommendation. Great inductee. Welcome to the IndyCast Hall of Fame. Um, Yes. My first inductee is a record called Behind the Music by a band from Sweden called The Soundtrack of Our Lives. (laughs) And this is a band, uh, they're a six-piece band, like I said. uh, They formed in 1995, broke up in 2012. This band is basically classic rock the band. Uh, (laughs) Like half the songs sound like Pink Floyd, the other half sound like The Who. There's a little bit of like late period Beatles in there, uh, like Abbey Road era Beatles. Um, I own several of their records, but behind the music to me is like, easily the most consistent and I think the most essential. Uh, so like if how I've described them so far sounds like it's up to, up your alley, definitely head to this record. I feel like this is a good example of something I, we were talking about a couple minutes ago of a band having their moment and actually being kind of big for like a little bit and then yeah. getting pushed aside. Like the soundtrack of our lives, uh, they were nominated for a Grammy for this what? record, for, like for best alternative record, like yeah. an American Grammy. Yeah, it was two thousand three. <laughs> they were nominated for a Grammy. They toured with Oasis. There was quite a bit of hype for this record because it was originally released only in Sweden uh, in in two thousand one, and it got a lot of great press. And people were buying it on import oh, uh, for a while. Which again, that's another thing that is totally uh, antiquated. And I feel like even two thousand one feels like a little late for people to you know be spending 30 40 dollars for an album on import seeing as how this was you know we were thick in the limewire casa era by then but um it became a phenomenon just from that um and i think 
in some respects, it had some negative backlash because of that. Like I read the Pitchfork review <laughs> of the record, and and Pitchfork. I mean, this is like the probably like most antithetical thing to like what Pitchfork would have liked in two thousand one. They gave it, a, and and they, and they hated it. They gave it a three point um, and I, I feel like to some degree that's why this band maybe hasn't been put in the canon. Uh, because Pitchfork now is one of the canon makers of, of modern music writing. And this is not a band that would ever be hyped by them. Um, and they're not quite famous enough to end up like on a Rolling Stone list. So it just ends up being like a really great record that falls through the cracks. And even though it had its moment, it, it, it went away. And look, I mean, as I described it earlier, this record is pretty derivative. I mean, you, you're not going to this record for for originality, but in terms of songwriting and just like a kick-ass rock record, um, I put it up with like a lot of the great albums of the early aughts. And it's it's interesting to co- to compare this to what was going on in New York at that time, like with the Strokes and Interpol, who were also very derivative bands as well, but just drawing from like a different period in uh, rock history also the soundtrack of our lives the members of that band you know they didn't look like julian casablancas you know they were sort of like heavy set dudes with beards uh (laughs) so you know again similar to the screaming trees example i guess i mean they were they were not like the most maybe photogenic people but they rocked and they were a great band (laughs) And, and this is a record i think that if uh you're into that classic rock revival if you're into that classic rock revivalism this is record's going to be up your alley if you don't already know it. Yeah, truth be told, I think I got these guys confused with the shout out louds. Um, and this album cover is like very similar, I think, to a spiritualized record that came out around the same time. Like I remember it seeing it. I remember seeing it on the shelf at our radio station and never listened to it. Um, but yeah, the imports two thousand one. I mean, that was like kind of the last time because like I would be getting like a lot of British albums like Elbow and Travis. And, you know, this, yeah, this is the kind of record that like is pure IndieCast Hall of Fame because it's, this is like an album that was allowed to succeed at like a pretty high level. Like, and, and you look at it in the context of Strokes or even the Vines, it's like, you know, who the heck are these guys? But, you know, they opened for Oasis, you know, granted 2002, three Oasis, but still. And, That's, you know, that would have put them in arenas. You know, they would yeah. have been playing, like, large venues. And, again, I think they were looked at it as a band that maybe was going to be able to build a career. And it, it just didn't really happen in America for them. Yeah. Like, behind the Music was their peak. But um, I was listening to it again this week. I think it really holds up. All right. So, th- oddly enough, the one I want to talk about next comes from this same era of just bands who were able to succeed uh, by just kind of riding the tide of uh, the new rock revival, if you will, but kind of taking it from a different direction. Now, if you follow me on Twitter, like, you know that like every now and again, I'll like pop up with ours. O U R S ours. I've never really had to say it out loud. Uh, Ours (laughs) distorted lullabies. Now this album celebrated its 20th anniversary this year. I've let my people down by not doing a 20th anniversary piece on it. Um, This one is such a fun time-stamped record to talk about because the lead singer, uh, Jim Nieko, uh, he was Jeff Buckley's guitar tech, uh, and he sings exactly like Jeff Buckley. Obviously, you know, Jeff Buckley had passed by by that time after a few years, and this is a vestige of a time when it was 
kind of normal for like rock singers, like male rock singers to try to get on their like Jeff Buckley shit, like vis-a-vis the Benz. I mean, like Tom York sort of popularized the Jeff Buckley sound, if that makes any sense. But this album is like state of the art. American new radio head. See, a lot of the new radio heads came from uh, Britain. And obviously, like, new radio head meant sounding like old radio head, Circa the Benz. And so this one was just the most (laughs) slavish, enthusiastic ripoff of the Benz uh, you could possibly imagine. It had uh, that Steve Lillywhite production. It sounds like like a roaring jet plane. It's it sounds incredible. And um, this the song it takes itself so so seriously, which I think is like the fun of talking about it now. But um, you know, it it, it, it there's, the songwriting is actually pretty strong. The production's incredible, and also. Just to hear someone try to sing like that, like, I think maybe the new rock revolution killed the idea of, you know, aside from, say, Matt Bellamy of Muse, trying to, like, be operatic or kind of diva-like. Um, and, you know, the, the way I remember this album, uh, or I remember this band in general, like, if, Steve, the next documentary you do gotta be about Field Day. Uh, in 2003, there was this big festival that was supposed to happen on this nature preserve in New York. It got moved to Giant Stadium. Uh, complete disaster. It rained that day. And I remember the first band I saw that day was ours. And they were in a parking lot. Like, they played in the Giant <laughs> Stadium parking lot. This was after their second album, Precious, which came out in, I believe, 2003. Oh, man. Produced by Ethan John. It's got some decent songs. It has a femme fatale cover on it. I love it's... that title, too, Precious. Like, you're just yeah. teeing it up for the rock critic with that one. <laughs> you know, when you call your record Precious. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, this album is just, like, it is so corny. But, like, at the same time, it reminds me of... Just what it was like to be a captive audience to MTV or radio and just be like, hey, this, I kind of like this song. Not even think about it critically at all and just still kind of enjoy it as like rock trash. Yeah, I mean, this is a great inductee for us because this is the type of band that I think in the moment would have annoyed a lot of people for oh, the reasons that joke. you're talking about. But now that a record like this that just benefits from like a huge major label budget so it sounds amazing dreamworks that's how you know it's 2001 and there's like a um there's something almost like wistful about listening to a record like this because you're like oh this isn't this doesn't exist anymore it's 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 the same reason why i really come to love like the use your illusion albums by guns and roses (laughs) because there's no way any rock band's ever going to be able to you know spend millions and millions of dollars on music that grandiose ever again so it's just you, you want to savor it uh in in retrospect i was just looking at photos of jimmy necco and uh <laughs> they're great and he he kind of looks like jeff buckley yeah. crossed with like vincent gallo yeah. uh, so it's like which seems like a good summation of his personality maybe in the yeah. early aughts uh but but god love him god love this angel voice diva from ours is beautiful stuff great inductee there my final inductee it's probably the least well known of the four records that we're talking about and also comes from a little bit later on in the aughts we just talked a lot about records released sort of at the turn of the century late 90s early 2000s 
This album came out in 2009. It's called When the Devil's Loose, and it's by A.A. Bondi. And this is a guy, you might know this guy under a different name. He used to play in a band in the 90s called Verbena. Remembering some guys in like the most profound way. Yeah, Jeez. we're yeah, we're going like multiple levels of remembering <laughs> some guys here. Verbena was a band that I think you could uh describe as being like a Nirvana ripoff in the 90s. That's exactly how you would describe them. <laughs> Even their name kind of sounds it almost kind of almost rhymes with Nirvana a little bit, but anyway, uh, mm-hmm. in that band he was known as Scott Bondy. And uh they did okay in the 90s and then they fizzled out by the end of the decade. And then 10 years later he comes back with a completely different sound. Now he's playing, um, you know, singer-songwriter Americana music, and he's going as A.A. A. Bondi. And he puts out a record in 2007 called American Hearts that definitely has that, like, Towns Van Sant slash, like, early Wilco sound uh, to it. Not uh, a piebald cover. Let's just make that very clear to the <laughs> typical person who listens to for me to talk about, like, emo shit. And A.A. Bondi, I mean, he never became, like, a big star off of that first record, but he, he got some notoriety. There's one of the best songs on that record is called I Killed Myself When I Was Young, mm-hmm. and that song is featured uh, in a very important sports scene in Friday Night Lights. Like, it's oh, yeah. played during, like, a football game. It's a pretty memorable scene, and they use the song very well. Also, A.A. Bondi is a total Friday Night Lights-type artist. Like, <laughs> you know, he totally fits in the wheelhouse of, like, the type of music that they used on that show. Um, so he puts out American Hearts in 2007. When the Devil's Loose is his second record. Uh, comes out in 2009. And I actually think it's a it, it, it's his best record. Mm-hmm. And uh, it leavens the more austere folk sound of American Hearts with this um, really great kind of like almost like Southern soul meets slow core type uh, instrumentation. It's very spare, um, but it sounds amazing. I mean, it, it really sounds like you're in a small room listening to like a three piece band playing. And um, I really think that it's one of the better Americana albums of the era. And again, this was a time late 2000s where, you know, obviously Fleet Foxes were was ascendant, Bonnie Vare uh with Forema Forever Ago, that was a huge record. So there was a lot of, you know, beardy indie folk going on at the time. Um and AA Bondi was coming at it I think from like more of a southern perspective, a little less psychedelic than some of those other bands, a little more stripped back. Um and when the Devil's Loose, I think, did pretty well as well. But again, it didn't totally crush it. And mm. then by his next record, 2011, it's called Believers, he moved more into like the slow core direction and mm. started to shed some of the Americana signifiers. And it just seemed like maybe the moment had passed. And we've talked about this many times on this show, that by the early 2010s, you saw a pretty dramatic shift in indie rock uh, away from, again, this Americana thing and also like the Brooklyn art rock thing that was going on to more of a pop thing and it really i think leveled a lot of the middle class of artists who were in that scene and i think he was a part of that Mm. and uh it was another eight years before he put out a record he put another album in 2019 called enderness um but yeah he's just a guy he's a mysterious guy too i think he's laid pretty low um but i don't this seems like a record that's ripe for rediscovery um i revisited it for this episode 
And uh, I, I really think it's like one of like the better, I guess, singer-songwriter Americana-type records to come out of this era. So when the devil's loose, check it out. Also check out American Hearts. I think that's a really great record, too. A.A. Yeah. A. Bondi. Yeah, we should also point out that this is not the guy who got knocked the fuck out by Jack White. Like, I, I feel, I feel oh, the like Va- the Von Bondies guy. No, not <laughs> yeah. the Von Bondies guy. What, what, what was his name, the, the singer? Uh, the Von Bondies guy who got knocked the fuck out by Jack White. That's the name I yeah. know him as. <laughs> yeah. To my knowledge, A.A. Bondy, and again, it's A period, A period Bondy, um, has never gotten a, into a fight with Scott. With the, As far as I know, A period, A period Bondy, A.A. Bondy has never gotten into a fight with Jack White. So... Uh, but maybe he did, and that's why we haven't heard from him. Maybe he got knocked out. Maybe he's like still laying in a, in a yeah. Detroit bar at this point. <laughs> All right, we've now reached the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? Yeah, so I, I first just you know want to give an RIP to Slipknot drummer or former Slipknot drummer. He had to leave the band because of medical uh, illness. Uh, Joey Jordison, um, just an incredible drummer. I remember he would talk about having to run like five miles or something like that before he could even like sit down and play his drums. Cause it was just so strenuous and he needed to, uh, you know, just get himself amped up like that. So he passed away at the age of 46 uh, this week. And um, you know, there's a lot of new metal talk in the air right now. A lot of it, you know, due to Woodstock 99 and just maybe just a, a reconsideration of its pros, its cons. But, uh, you know, my recommendation is to go back and listen to the first Slipknot album, like the self-title, not the one like Mate Repeat that came out beforehand. But that first album, uh, like the best of new metal, it just sounds completely unmoored from every thing else in the rock canon um the drumming is just incredible because like it's him just a very sick technical drummer and also you know a guy banging on kegs um but it's the the anger the songwriting like the hooks i think uh just still sounds super duper fresh um i just think it will shock you to actually go back and hear like and just imagine what it must have been like in 1999 to hear a record like slipknot self-titled even with all the other things coming out like at that time to just hear it again with new ears. Um, you know that I, I would say Slipknot's like first out, like I say this as like honestly as possible. It is, it's like a must listen for anyone who's cared about like the direction heavy music, whether rap or rock has taken in the time since also Iowa slaps too. people equal shit is just watch the live video of that one. That's they use for the official video. Has anyone made, a documentary or written a book about Slipknot? Uh, I imagine. I wonder but... that. They seem like a band that's ripe for like a deep dive because uh, everything about them, their music and the mythology around the band, mm-hmm. it's a very interesting band. Like I would love yeah. to see like a deep dive on them. Uh, and maybe this will be a catalyst for that if that hasn't already happened. Uh, um, let's see. There's Slipknot... Inside the Sickness, Behind the Mask. It was written in 2000, import, 2001. 
See, introduction that, by Ozzy Osbourne, afterward by Gene Simmons. That sounds like it's maybe a quickie book that capitalizes yeah. on their success. I'd like to see something now. I mean, it would be you know to talk about their background and because mm-hmm. I don't know, I don't know a ton about their background, but they uh, the music I've heard, I, I've enjoyed, and I think they're a fascinating band. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but yeah, R.I.P. to Joey. I also am going to do an R.I.P. Uh, mm. for. Uh, a bass player. I mean, we have a bass player and a drummer, so like an incredible rhythm section yeah. in our recommendation corner. This is a Dusty Hill of ZZ Top, who passed away this week at the age of seventy-two. And uh, ZZ Top is a band that I feel like has gotten its due more so mm-hmm. uh, in the last you know several years, but they still seem like a little underrated to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but really, they are like one of the most consistent and uh, like powerful like rock bands. From America, you know, to emerge from the '70s, and really, like, if you want to dig into their catalog, I would recommend pretty much any album they put out in the '70s, and then up through their big album breakthrough in the early '80s, Eliminator. Yeah. Um, and you know, if you listen to the '70s stuff, it's just kick-ass bluesy rock with an amazing guitar player Billy Gibbons and just like a rock solid swinging rhythm section like it's a heavy sounding band like i know like when i say bluesy rock from the 70s some people <laughs> might roll their eyes at that a little bit but this is like powerful riffy rock music there's a reason why say like Josh Ome of Queens of the Stone Age started hanging out with Billy Gibbons years later because there's definitely a connection between what ZZ Top was doing and I think like the hard rock and even the metal of the future. Um, ZZ Top to me I think is somewhere in the DNA of that kind of music. Yeah. And then of course you have Eliminator which comes out mm. in 1983 and that's the source of some of the most famous ZZ Top songs like Sharp Dressed Man and Give Me All Your Lovin' songs like that. And you go back to it, and it really is like a, a work of like 80s rock genius because you have, on one hand, this kick ass rock band, and then they're also integrating like synth pop into what they're doing in a way that feels totally organic. It doesn't seem like they're just, you know, catering to the trends of the time. They found a way to do it in a way where it sounded heavy and, uh, you know, of a piece of what they were already doing, but it also made their songs more accessible and it allowed that album to go through the roof. Um, so if you only know the singles or the music videos, I would recommend like give Eliminator a try. I think that record actually sounds more contemporary than you might think it does. Uh, and and then go back to the 70s records because they're amazing too. Yeah, what would the modern equivalent of like an Eliminator be? That would have to be like a band from like the early 2000s coming back with like a minimal pop like rebrand. I mean, I think the Sergio Simpson record Sound and Fury, I seem like him trying to make Eliminator. Yeah, but he's he's been popular. I'm talking about like a popular like they just completely reinvent themselves after like going completely out of fashion. I, well, I'm very I mean, that's that's what Kings of Leon needs to do. We need to get Kings of Leon on the Eliminator <laughs> oh, yeah. train. I think I yes. think they would be the band that like okay, let's get them together with um, I don't want to say Jack Antonoff, but you know, some, yeah, let's just say Jack Antonoff was some pop producer <laughs> who could like both encourage them to write really riffy songs and then also put like synths in there. Uh, that'd be pretty amazing, actually. Maybe we're this is what we're going to actualize in this episode. Uh, something like that happening because I'd be all over that record if they pulled it off as well as ZZ Top did with Eliminator. 
Uh, I think a Kings of Leon pop record with lots of synths on it could be kind of cool. Anyway, that seems like a good note to end on here. So why don't we say goodbye to everyone. Thank you for listening to this episode of IndieCast. We'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box. (laughs) 